0: Uh, I just finished it, but uh, about two weeks ago, I was a part where David Chef's son was approaching his two-year benchmark in being sober from meth and from alcohol. Uh, it's a phenomenal achievement after a roller co- several years of roller coastering in relapse and rehab and relapse and rehab and relapse and rehab. And relapse and rehab uh, two years, he hit this milestone, which is a big deal. Statistics will tell you that meth users rarely get to the two-year benchmark. Um, research says it can take two years for a meth user to have their brain recovered, healed from the damage that's been done by the meth. And that's if they survive. That's if they're still alive. Uh, that's if uh, their brain recovers at all. So Nick's two years sobriety milestone is a very, very big deal. And while I'm reading the book, I'm getting excited because I'm looking at my Kindle and you know, we're at 80% So we're at the end of this thing. I'm ready to put this thing down. (laughs) It's been a long ride. It's been an emotional ride. I'm like, holy cow, I cannot imagine being those parents and what they went through. And then he just routinely sees his little blinker on his phone and he hits it and he starts listening to his messages and he hears Nick's voice. Great news, right? And then he hears Nick's voice. It's brittle. Um, It's breaking up. It's slurry it's sticking to his self. He can't get his tongue out of the way. And he's crying. Uh, and then on this page, he writes, no, 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 12 no's in a row. Trying to communicate his utter despair to the reader. Uh, an expert named Beverly Conyers in the field of recovery documents for all their tears and heartache and desperately good intentions. Most families of addicts are defeated in the end. Addicts persist in their self-destructive addictive behavior until something within themselves, something quite apart from anyone else's efforts changes so radically that the desire to get high is dulled and ultimately deadened by the desire for a better life. In other words, the only way an addict gets better is if all of a sudden they have a greater desire than the desire to get high. That's it. Pages later, David ends up confessing. He says, right after this happens, and he's now going through his being, his world being racked again. And then he turns to the reader and he says, listen, I want to confess to you that I started writing this book uh, during his two-year recovery. Because I was so hopeful. He was doing so well. And I was thinking, this is going to have a great ending for a great book. And now he writes, I'm confident that I have done everything I could do to help Nick. Now it's up to him. I accept that I have to let him go and he will or will not figure things out. I imagine that Nick too may be relieved that I have stopped trying to take on his recovery. It sets the stage for a different kind of relationship for us. Rather than this codependent one and this enabling one and me trying to control him, even if it's to save him. Our relationship can move into something different, one of acceptance and compassion, with healthy boundaries, of course, where the love is a given. I only wish I had gotten here quicker, but I couldn't. If only life were easier, it isn't, nor is that my goal any longer. Once I desperately wanted things to be simpler, but my worldview was broken over the course of Nick's addiction. Broken worldviews are painful and then liberating at the same time. Have you ever had a worldview breakdown? You know, where the way that you see the world, the way that you see reality, and all of a sudden you have this traumatic awakening that it's not the way things are. That your way of seeing things doesn't match with the way reality is. And at the same time, you become crashingly aware that, oh my word, I've been hurting myself, I've been hurting other people, but then there's this deep sense of light that's beginning to flutter in your heart and you actually start sensing liberation because now you see, whereas before you didn't. If this is you, if you, if you understand what it is to have a traumatic awakening, if you understand what it is to have a worldview breakdown, and for those of you that know you need one, This passage is for you. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Now, we are going to be reading the whole event of the parting of the sea. I kept thinking, how do I leave something out or leave something in in order to capture this event? And I just gave up and I said, we're just going to read it. So if you need to sit down, please feel free to sit down. If you need to sit down, please feel free to sit down.
1: I'll be reading Exodus 13, verses 17 through 22, and then all of chapter 14. When Pharaoh let, let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, "God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here." And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud moved by day, and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of the pi between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon, You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with them and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Israel with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Heroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, "'Is it because there there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness?' What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of, the, of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea And the Lord drove the sea back by the strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea.
0: I'm going to give you the, uh, the purpose or the application right off the bat. Verse 31, that's where the whole thing's heading. So what is this passage seeking to do to each one of us? It's to accomplish verse 31 in our lives. So let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would bless your word. We acknowledge that uh, we can't um, find you. We can't see you. Uh, we need you to open our eyes, we need you to work in our hearts, so Lord, would you make yourself clear to our minds, real to our hearts through the power of this passage, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are about ready, we have just left the definitive deliverance, which was what, the death of the firstborn in Egypt, and now we are moving chapters 13 through 18, there are a series of six events in Israel's life that are marked out. This is in the first two months of their departure from Egypt. Now, what's fascinating about these six events is that they're not exhaustive. In other words, the, the Bible's not giving you everything that happened during these first two months of their liberation. It's focusing on six intentionally chosen events, specifically. Why? Well, Alec Mortier, who's a world-famous English expositor to the Bible— He has an accent, so that always makes you world famous. Says this about Israel's first two months. How much more we would like to know, right? We would love to know more about what happened those first first two months of their liberation. He says, but the purpose of the Bible is not to satisfy our curiosity, but to meet our needs. Here's the point. The purpose of these six events from 13 to 18 is to jolt the reader. It's to bring about a traumatic awakening in the reader. It's to break down worldviews. Another way we could say it is this. The big idea of these six events in Israel's first two months of freedom is this. This is the normal life with God. What is a normal life with God, you say? These six events are going to tell you what a normal life with God is. It's going to tell you that a normal life with God is many, many deliverances. Remember, we already had the apocalyptic, cataclysmic, definitive once and for all deliverance, the 10th plague. Remember, the whole world, all the world's families owe a firstborn debt to God because of sin. And God came to claim the debt in Egypt. But there was a Passover tucked in there. And the Passover tells us that God paid the firstborn debt for Israel. So this is once and for all deliverance. This is the deliverance of the deepest kind. This is the kind that we don't necessarily overtly see on the text, but its theme is running through the whole scripture that there's a a bigger deliverance than getting out of Egypt and from Pharaoh. There's a deeper deliverance from sin and death, a more wretched bondage, a more miserable mode of existence. And God wants to deliver us from that, right? So now that we're definitively delivered, what does a life with God look like? 13 through 18, six events, many, many deliverances, okay? So here's the plan. Why do we need to know this? Why do you need to know this? And then why do we need so many, many, many deliverances? Why? Couldn't the definitive one be enough? What's the nature of a mini deliverance? Why do we need them? And then lastly, how do you survive it when you're in it? I mean, that's really what we're all interested in. Okay, if there is going to be this series of many, many deliverances, how am I going to survive? How does my family survive? How does my loved one survive? How do churches survive? How does this happen? Okay, so let's start with why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know why do you need to know that if you're a Christian and you have a life with God, why do you need to know that you will, you will encounter many, many deliverances in your life, that that is the Christian life? It's normal. Why do you need to know that? Watch what happens when you don't know that. That's what this passage wants to say. Here's what happens when you don't. Look at verses 17 through 22 of chapter 13. They're telling us that God is intentionally leading Israel to a dead end. Did you pick that up? In other words, the best way to get to the promised land is to go north. In fact, if you went north, you would get there in two weeks to Canaan. Sure, you'd have to go through some Philistine outposts a long way, or some Philistines, some Egyptian. There's some military forts that are up there, and then you're going to encounter the Philistines. But look, when you come in comparison to what you're about to face, it's small change compared to what's about to happen, right? So you have to deal with a couple forts. Going north is the shorter quicker, better, more luxurious way. Going south is the exact worst way to go. Going south is actually going away from the promised land. It's actually going to a place called the wilderness. And if we know about the Bible, what the Bible tells you about the wilderness is the wilderness is a place that's hostile to people. The wilderness is a place that doesn't like people. It's great for a sandbox, but for people who like hotels, it's not a good place to be. And it will now take months to get to Canaan, and it gets even worse than that. When you look at verse fourteen, or chapter fourteen, verses one and two, it says, "Then the Lord said to Moses, while they're already going in this direction, He tells the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pilluharoth." Most folks think that's a, a canal an opening in the canal system uh, in Egypt. In other words, Egypt was known certainly for its military might, but it had this unbelievable canal irrigation system tied to the Nile, which made it flourish, which made it a booming economy, which made it wealthy, which made it a superpower. And so one of these openings is where they're headed, or God is sending them. And it says it's between Migdal. Now, Migdal means tower. So this is a Philistine military outpost. And then... The sea. So between Migdal, a military outpost, and the sea, you're to, you're to camp out there in front of baal which is another fort that's named after a Canaanite god. You shall encamp facing it. These two forts with your back to the sea. God is intentionally leading Israel into a dead end. Do you get that? God is intentionally leading his people to a dead end. They're back against the sea, surrounded by open desert with two military forts already in your presence. You can't outrun a chariot. You can't. In fact, an open field for a chariot, whew, you know, that's like back in the, in the days when you have your BB gun and you're setting up your stuff and you're just plucking them right out of the water. Here's the point. God loves dead ends. God loves 11th hour deliverances. God loves for his people to experience deep in their bones their weakness and his power at the same time. You catch that? In other words, God loves to have his people feel deep in their bones, two things at the same time. You and I are incredibly weak, and he is incredibly strong at the same time. If you don't know this, you will be overcome by your dead end. Because this is what happens in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Now, fearing, when you're in a dead end, you better fear. Fearing's normal. When you're in a dead end, you should be discouraged. When you're in a dead end, it should be painful. When you're in a dead end, you should have some anger. This is the stuff of being a human being. This is the stuff of taking life seriously. In fact, if you're in a dead end and you don't feel these things, you don't fear, you don't get angry, you don't get discouraged, you don't have pain, you're not fully human. You're acting contrary to humanity. You're not taking life seriously. Instead, you're going to deny your life and you're going to self-protect yourself and you're not going to walk and embrace what's happening. You're going to be half a person, if a person, a shell of a person, but to fear greatly. To be discouraged greatly, to have anger greatly, is to be overcome by it. Meaning it swallows you up. It rules you. It enslaves you. It drags you away. It's to lose yourself. If we don't know that our life with God is many, many deliverances, we will be overcome by dead ends in our life. They will sweep you away. Because dead ends have the capacity to do two things. They have the capacity to to grow you and change you or the capacity to destroy you. There's a lot of power in a dead end. Okay. And if you don't know this, if you don't know that this is the life with God, you will be completely overwhelmed by your dead ends because God leads his people to dead ends. Okay. All right. Um, Why do we need many, many deliverances Here's the short answer. It's really, really quick. Hear it and then see if you can kind of tease it out a little bit, maybe work it in a little bit. The reason why we need many, many deliverances is because we're addicted to Egypt. Did you see that? Verses 10 through 12. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? Bringing us out of Egypt. Now they're complaining that they were brought out of Egypt. Now on the field, they said, what have you done and bring us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you when we were, we were in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. All of a sudden, they want to serve the Egyptians now. For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, here's the deal. When you look at ancient Near Eastern history, ancient Near history says this. When you look at other parts of the Bible like Isaiah and Hebrews and Revelation, they say this. And then in Exodus chapter 7, God outright says it. You know what it says? Egypt was a land of gods. Egypt was loaded with idols. Egypt was loaded with alternative gods to the God. That was its characteristic identity. When you went into Egypt, there were all these alternative gods and replacement gods and these substitute saviors. In other words, the Egyptian would come up to you and say, listen, here's how, here's how you have meaning in your life from this. But the, the switch was also this. Not only could this thing give you meaning in life, this thing could also deactivate meaning in your life. So you could look for these gods and idols to give you value and worth, but at the same time, They have the power to devalue you and make you worthless. So they have the power to give you security and fullness and freedom and happiness and comfort and pleasure, but they also have the power to break you down and discomfort you and dishevel you and shake you like an earthquake so that there's nothing left to you. So Egypt was a land of gods and a land of idols And Israel wanted to go back to Egypt. Israel wanted to serve Egypt. Israel wanted their old gods back. PCA pastor and popular author, preacher, Tullian Chavidgin, tells of a dead end he faced one time in ministry. It was actually the defining dead end of his ministry up to this point. Uh, He had a new church, It was a new church, it was a growing church, it was a flourishing church, it was a gospel-driven church, and then Coral Ridge, which is a massive, famous church that was in the same town, lost its pastor, who was a famous pastor, Dr. D. James Kennedy. Well, these two churches got together and they decided, let's merge. And Tolian said, man, the first couple of months were absolutely incredible. We were flying high, and then the bottom fell out. In his own words, he said, Before in every church I'd been a part of, I was widely accepted and approved and appreciated. I'd always felt loved in church. Now, for the first time, I found myself in the uncomfortable position of being deeply disliked and deeply distrusted by more than a few people. Tolian writes. He was miserable. He was depressed. He was so anxious and fearful. His hands would shake during the day. He couldn't sleep at night. He couldn't eat. He was dropping 10, 15, 20 pounds. He was frustrated with anger. He was worn out. He was worn thin. And then he said he had finally had one of these getting it out with God kind of moments. Having it out with God. And this is what he said. He said, God, I want my old life back. I want my old church back. when things were great. And he said he was reading Colossians at the time, and as he was reading through Colossians, he said, God, in a very gentle way, and yet in a very firm way, said to him, it's not your old life that you want back. It's your old idols that you want back. And I love you too much to let you have them back. He wanted to go back to Egypt. And you ask, well, what kind of idols does he have? That's just kind of creepy. I mean, there's we have idols. We have these I'm not carving anything in my room and I'm not burning incense. An idol in the Bible is a major, major theme. It's a major, major definition of what sin is. That all sin is trying to be your own savior. It's trying to find something or someone other than God to give you something or something that only God can give you. And so it doesn't have to be bad things that could be idols. We're not carving that. It could be good things. In fact, most idols and God replacements are good things. And so for Tulian, he said this, he said, listen, I'd never realized before how dependent I'd become on human approval and acceptance until so much of it was taken away in the rolling controversy of Coral Ridge. In other words, he's saying, listen, I didn't know I looked for value and worth and justification and validation from people until I started getting criticized and beat down. Instead of each new week, there was a new thing being spun about how I, bad I was and how untrustworthy I was, right? You know what's so shocking about this account and Israel's addiction to Egypt is this, is that the place that they suffered tremendous bondage and brutality has now become a place that they think has the power to give them life and security. Their back's against the wall, they're at a dead end, and when they're at a dead end, they think that Egypt will provide life and security for them. I mean, isn't that the way it is? I mean, think about it. Everyone in this room struggles, whether you realize it or not, with finding worth and value in what people think of you. So let's think about it just for a second. You have this desire to have the approval of others, and if it controls us, if we're running after it, it actually wears us out. And it actually makes us less of the people that we would like to be. In other words, everybody wants to be themselves. Everybody wants to be able to be who they are. But when you're When you're looking for people to define who you are, you now have to adjust yourself to everybody you're with. And so you do things like you kind of split yourself. You're one thing over here. You're one thing over there. The scriptures say in Proverbs, you know, we'll flatter over here and then we'll backbite over here. That we actually become less human and we actually get mixed up. It's like walking into a fun house where you got one mirror over here, you're, you're long and tall, and then another mirror over there, you're wide and large, and you're like, which one am I? Who am I? I'm in a fun house. So over here, I look like this. Over here, I look like that. And your life becomes a fun house. You don't know who you are. You become a shell of who you are. And you become anxious because of what people think of you. And you worry about it, right? Now, notice, this is stuff that we all know about. It's stuff that's all common, but don't... Here's the point. We still think the approval of people have the power to give us life. It's hurting us, but we keep going back to it as if it has power to give us life or it has power to make us insecure and take life from us. We might not today be living with physical threat to our life. So when you read the Psalms, And it talks about physical, you know, you have physical threat to your life and they're calling out to the Lord out of real danger. But today, we live with the threat and fears of things that we think have the power of life in them or to take the power of life from us. We live in that world, right? One of the primary purposes behind divine dead ends is to deliver us from our addictions to Egypt in other words, God is leading us to dead ends, but he's leading us to dead ends to deliver us from our addictions to eat, to Egypt, because we still have the sin nature with us. And that nature is addicted to Egypt. Okay. All right. So how do you survive a dead end? How does that happen? Let's look at verses 13 and 14. It's great. Moses tells us right off the bat, he says, here's how you survive. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. So how do you survive a dead end? You have to do the hardest thing in the world to do. Be quiet. Moses saying, listen, do you want to survive a dead end? Do you want to survive a dead end? a mini deliverance, shut up, be quiet. Now in the Old Testament, these words don't necessarily translate to us today. It just seems like, okay, just shut your mouth. Now for some people, that's going to be really, really hard. Uh, but for others of us, that's going to be really easy to do. You speak two words, you used your quota for the day. So you, you're in a good place. Uh, but the text actually says this. When it says to be quiet, it's equated to what's used in the Psalms and throughout the Old Testament. That same word is, is used in contexts like cease striving. Stop trying to control your life. Stop trying to save yourself. In the ancient Near East, this word was used for warriors it'll blow you away. Now remember in the ancient Near East when battles were happening, it was up close and personal. You looked into the eyes of whoever life you were taking. Unless you were an archer, you killed at a distance. But most battles were all infantry and it was all bone on bone, shield on shield, face on face, spit on spit. And so the swords are ringing through the air, shields are cracking on, banging on bones, Arrows are hissing like missiles flying through the air. And in the middle of that, this word is saying that the warrior is to lay his arms down at his side in the middle of war. That's what this means. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. Every immaterial molecule in your soul and every material Molecule in your soul is screaming in the midst of battle, save yourself, fight for yourself, protect yourself. When Paul looks over human history, he has this great book called Galatians, and in chapter two, he says, Do you know what the foundational elementary power of the world is? In other words, the deepest drive in the world the deepest, most basic, most foundational principle in all the world, the need to save yourself. This passage is saying what Moses is saying, stop doing that. Be quiet. Lay your arms down at your side. Stop trying to control your life. This need is why we're addicted to Egypt. Because we look at Egypt and we say, that's our salvation. This will save us. This has the power to give me life, and it has the power to take it away. So I'll serve it. And this is why idols have so much power in our life. And it takes dead ends to see them. Okay? So how do you do this impossible? I mean, you should be hearing that, and I should be hearing that. Like, oh, how in the world do you stop trying to save yourself? How No one does that. In the midst of battle, you never lay your hands down at your side. How do you do that? Well, look at verses 24 and 25. And in the morning, watch the Lord. In the morning, watch. The Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and through the Egyptians forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. Here's the deal. Remember, when God localizes his presence, what's happening is he's localizing his presence, but he has to clothe his presence. He can't just show up and localize his presence because he'd kill everybody. So when he, when he localizes himself, he has to clothe himself. He has to condescend himself. And so we have a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud during the day. And God's localized his presence and his presence over Egypt and over Israel, and he looks down on Egypt, and you know what he does? He strikes panic and impotence in the greatest sign of Egypt's power, the chariot. God looks and he says, I'm going to hit Egypt at their greatest strength, their chariot's. Now you need to think of the chariot this way. The chariot is why Egypt is a superpower. The chariot is a game changer in military strategy and warfare. The chariot is wood and steel and thousand plus pound beasts crashing into flesh and bone. Infantry ranks are mowed down by chariots. Think of it as the first tank, a tank against a person, a tank against a group of people, right? So this is what the Egyptians, this is what the Israelites saw. They saw the chariots running them down on the wilderness with the wilderness around them, surrounding them and their backs to the sea. So the Lord hits Egypt in front of all of Israel at their greatest strength as if it was nothing. Verse 27 says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course and the Egyptians fled into it. And the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the sea shore. In other words, they looked around and what God did is he wanted them to say, here is the strength and might of Egypt. Here's what you're so greatly afraid of. Here's what you thought could save you. It's a dead body floating on the sea. The Lord did it alone. God saved saved Israel alone. And here's the key. The whole passage is saying, see this. Recognize this. Take the reality that God did it, accomplished it, worked it, fought it, that you can lay your hands down because the one that's fighting for you is God himself. And when you start taking up your arms to fight and try to save yourself, you start getting in the way what he's trying to do. And so this whole passage, remember what Moses said before it happened in verse 13? See the salvation of the Lord that's about to happen. He was warning them. He was warming them up. Look, all you have to do is see. All you have to do is stand firm in what you see. That's all you have to do. In other words, Israel, you're a spectator, not a participant. You don't even enter into it. God did it all. Not only that, the Egyptians saw that. Did you see that in verse 25? The Egyptians knew this. In fact, the Egyptians saw God was fighting for them. Look what the text says. Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord fights for them. The most distant people in the text saw that God was doing it. The furthest people away from God saw that God was doing it alone. Watch what happens when we see this. Verse 31 happens, which we said right at the beginning is where everything's going. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in servant Moses. When we see this in our dead ends, when we see that God alone is the one that fights, delivers, accomplishes, works, you know what happens? We now are greatly, fearing greatly. The greatly moves off fear. You'll still fear, but the greatly moves off it, and it transfers to Fearing God. And this fearing God in the Bible is never terror for God. It's never that. It means an overwhelming sense of being overcome by who God is. His goodness, his mercy, his love, his deliverance, his salvation. And the greatly moves over here and you are overwhelmed by it. And your hands fall to your side and all hell's breaking loose. And you walk through like it is a walk in the park. Because God delivers. All right, we're going to wrap this up. There's some weird stuff that happens here. I mean, how do you get to Jesus in here? Here's how you get there. There are some comments made about Moses that, I mean, quite frankly, it's just really odd. Do you see those? Very, very odd. In fact, in 31, look at it. It says, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What? What? They're putting their faith in Moses? That's a little scary. That's a little weird. And then you see other parts in the Bible or in in Exodus where it says that Moses was like a god. And you're like, ooh, okay. This is getting creepier. And then you got, look at verse 15. Then there's verse 15. Right after the Israelites freak out. Because the Israelites see the chariots, they freak out. What does Moses do? He walks in and he says, Israel Stand firm. Don't fear. Be quiet. Watch what God's going to do. See the salvation that he's going to do. And then you have this weird verse in verse 16 that Peter N says, interpreters since before Christ have struggled with trying to understand. In 16, God reprimands, rebukes Moses. What? Moses wasn't grumbling. Moses wasn't complaining. He was calling for faith he was the only one responding rightly in this situation and god rebukes him for being a grumbler peter n says the only way that you can break through the oddness of moses being like god and so deeply associated with israel is to understand he's the mediator And what that means is a mediator, he represents Israel. So when Israel grumbles, Moses grumbles. When Israel wants to go back to Egypt, God looks at Moses and sees that he wants to go back to Egypt. The guilt of Israel is associated and identified and put on Moses. And then the other positive part is true too. All the power in this text and the salvation in this text, it's almost like, is Moses doing it or God's doing it? But the other part of mediation is not only is a mediator representing the people, the mediator's representing God. He's God-like. So all of a sudden, characteristics and attributes are not only given to where Moses is taking on the characteristics of Israel, but Moses is taking on the characteristics of God. You have this god man in the text so jesus is the better mediator and what we need to see is that this man became so associated with you is that he took on your guilt and your addictions to egypt so much so that he became egypt and God washed him away and said to the walls of water, Take him out. And he's so identified with you. Because he's so identified with God that he he became a man and lived a perfect life. As if you did. So we have in Jesus the only one that enables us to live in dead ends. And so everyone's going to go through dead ends. The Christian life is a life of many, many deliverances. God is going to lead you to dead ends. How are you going to survive in those dead ends? You've got to see that there's a mediator that has taken all the bad stuff and the disaster and so associated with you that whatever stuff you got going on is now his stuff. And it's now his up to such an extent that he crushed it and defeated it. So wherever you are in a dead end, whatever God's doing, he's surely not punishing you. He can't. He already punished his son. And then wherever you are in a dead end, what is true of Jesus is now true of you. You are accepted. You are loved. You are approved. God loves Jesus with the same love for you. And all of a sudden, This mini deliverance pushes you in to the deeper deliverance. And of course, that was the design from the first place. Amen.